Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 66, Before Abraham Was, What? In this episode, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into the issue of how we should interpret John 8.58 and into the ancient history of interpreting John 8.58, where Jesus says it's usually translated, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Or maybe you could paraphrase it like this. Before Abraham was, I am the Messiah. And I'm not quite in my normal voice today. I hope it doesn't bug you. I've got a cold that I can't seem to get rid of. But here's what's happened so far. In episode 61, Dr. Dustin Smith discussed the ancient Jewish habit of talking about things which are foreordained by God as already existing. The idea is that they exist, not literally, but figuratively in God's mind, as it were. In episode 62, Dr. Smith addressed a number of passages in the Gospel according to John that are most often interpreted as teaching that Jesus existed long before he was a human being. One of those was John 8.58. Essentially, Dr. Smith argued that Jesus is asserting that he existed before Abraham, but you have to ask, what kind of existence did he mean? And his answer is, existence in God's mind. That is, it was part of God's plan, even before Abraham, that Jesus would be the Messiah. In episode 63, we heard from some scholars, including Thomas Belsham, Dr. James McGrath, and F.F. Bruce. But it was mostly Belsham, and his take on John 8.58 largely supported and complemented what Dr. Smith had said. In the next episode, number 64, which was mostly a presentation by Dr. Mark Murphy on Anselmianism about God, I addressed a reader question that had come in. The reader asked essentially, how far back does this interpretation go, interpreting John 8.58 not merely to be saying that Jesus was predestined to be the Messiah, but rather that Jesus is God, or divine, or a member of the Trinity, or something like that. And that got me started on a quest. I started digging through the indexes of the translations of ancient works of theology that I have to see if any of them referred to John 8.58 and what conclusions they drew from that. I started with the Apostolic Fathers and was quite surprised to find that really they don't refer to John 8.58 at all. Then I was off to the races. I worked my way up through the second century, and in the early apologists you don't find reference to it either. And in a comment for the blog post on episode 65, a reader named Sarah said, Hi Dale, very interesting discussion on John 8.58 in the works of the early church fathers. I would suggest that while Justin himself did not apply this verse to Christ, he may well have laid the groundwork for such an application. The following is a quote from Justin's first apology, chapter 63. And the angel of God spake to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush, and said, I am that I am, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He who spake to him was indeed the Son of God, who is called both angel and apostle. And then Sarah says, It seems likely that Irenaeus, as a follower of Justin, honed in on this and deduced a connection to the ego eimi, I am, in John 8.58, and the rest, as they say, is history. Then she quotes from Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho, the Jew, chapter 60, which says, It will not be the creator of all things, in other words, Yahweh, the Father, 
that is the God that said to Moses that he was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, but it will be he who has been proved to you to have appeared to Abraham, ministering to the will of the maker of all things. In other words, ministering to the will of God. Now, this is a great point. Thank you, Sarah, for making this point. I probably should have widened my search to include the statements to Moses also. I haven't done that yet. But what I think she shows is that it was the theory that came first. It was the Logos theory that came before the interpretation of John 8:58, as Jesus being divine and literally existing back in the time of Abraham, indeed interacting with Abraham. Of course, if you look at John 8:58, he doesn't say that at all. He says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. In other words, he foresaw it as a prophet. It was the Jews who are always misunderstanding him and John who draw the consequence that Jesus is at least as old as Abraham. People don't realize this now, but in the second century, Logos theology was very controversial. And if you think about it, how could it not be controversial? On the face of it, the being who reveals himself to Moses and Abraham, etc., is the one true God. In the New Testament, the one true God, Yahweh, is the Father. That's quite a surprise to now be told that, well, yeah, but it wasn't really the Father, it was really this other being, a kind of in-between between the created and uncreated. The Father, no, he's, he's omnipotent, but he couldn't possibly interact with people or have a visible manifestation, or appear himself in a theophany. No, no, it had to have been the Logos. And of course, for Justin and these early Logos theorists before Origen, the Logos doesn't eternally exist, but is, as it were, expressed out of God at a time before the creation, when then God has a need to interact with creation, indirectly through this other being, his new helper that has now come into existence. So the theory is that this helper, this go-between between God and his creation, is none other than the Logos of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. That that Logos was a pre-human Jesus. The Logos theology accepts from Platonism the idea that the ultimate source, that the one true God, has to really remain aloof from the rest of creation. It would sort of... Uh, sully him to directly interact with material. And so he exists in a timeless, changeless, transcendent state, and he can only act indirectly with creation by way of some kind of uh, emanated beings. This idea really comes from the Jewish Platonist Philo of Alexandria. He thought that God was super transcendent like this and had to interact with well, it's very confusing. I need to do a future episode on this. Sometimes he thinks the Logos or the Spirit of God are like extensions of God's power, maybe manifestations of God or something like that. And sometimes he seems to talk about them and think about them as if they are agents alongside God, other selves cooperating with God. So anyway, who's this God interacting with Moses in the Old Testament and who is, it says in various places, seen well, the Logos theologian said, the New Testament says that God can't be seen, that is the Father, the ultimate source, the one true God. And so they say this, quote, God that was seen in the Old Testament, that must have been really Jesus. That was controversial. It was controversial that the direct creator was Jesus. Even at the end of the second century, people habitually would refer to the Father as the creator. 
And now the Logos theologians came along and said, actually, there were two that created. And a lot of Christians objected to this and said, wait, there can't be two creators and there would be two gods, but we know there's only one God, and that's the Father. Well, that's another story. But anyway, the point as regards John 8.58 is this Logos theology on which God can't directly interact, but has to interact through an emanated go-between, a somewhat lesser being who stands between God and creation, that theology came first, that there had to be only indirect interaction between God and the cosmos. And then, well, we need to find support for that. Justin doesn't refer anywhere in his genuine writings to John 8.58, but a little bit later on, Catholic writers start to do this. I mentioned you see it in Irenaeus, you also see it in Origen, in uh, at least one of his commentaries. And after Irenaeus, then it's very common to refer to John 8.58. But this is the interesting thing. What is the point they're trying to get out of it? What exactly is shown by this statement of Jesus, I am, if that's the right way to translate it? Well, let's distinguish three different things they might be after. Some say that he is just saying that I am God himself. Who is God? That's me. Alternately, some are saying that he's claiming to have an attribute such as eternity or timeless existence, which, what, Jesus? The man walking around has timeless existence? Anyway, a second idea is that Jesus is claiming to have an attribute which implies being God himself, because only God himself has that attribute. Okay, so the first two ideas are he's just saying, I am God. The second one is, I am maybe eternal or timeless, and that obviously people would realize implies being God himself. Third, maybe he's just making the point that he existed a long time before he was human. In fact, he existed even before Abraham. Now, if you think there's some heavy point here beyond, again, just that Jesus was predestined to be the Messiah, then what is the point exactly? Well, it's distressingly common for American evangelicals today to kind of fake it. One commentary says, and I, I think this is lame, so I don't care to say who or what this is, but so one recent evangelical commentary says, quote, if Jesus merely wished to imply that he existed before Abraham, he should have said before Abraham was, I was, but I am was a title for God, Exodus 3.14, which suggests that Jesus is claiming more than he merely existed before Abraham. End quote. Suggests more. Well, what is that more? So, in Origen and Irenaeus, the main point is that Jesus existed before Abraham, although sometimes they also make the point that Abraham foresaw his day, that is, his ministry or his crucifixion, something in Jesus' future. Now, if you go a little bit farther in church history, people start to draw a few more consequences from the text. So there's the very interesting Roman presbyter Novation, who flourished and wrote right around the middle of the 200s. He wrote an important early work on the Trinity, and here's some of what Novation says about this and other passages. If Christ is man only, how does he say, I proceeded forth and came from God, when it is evident that man was made by God and did not proceed forth from him. But in the way in which as man he proceeded not from God, 
Thus the word of God proceeded, of whom it is said, My heart hath uttered forth a good word, which, because it is from God, is with reason also with God. And this, too, since it was not uttered without effect, reasonably makes all things. For all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. But this word whereby all things were made is God. And God, says he, was the word. Therefore God proceeded from God, in that the word which proceeded is God, who proceeded forth from God. If Christ is only man, how does he say, If any man shall keep my word, he shall not see death for ever. Not to see death for ever. What is this but immortality? But immortality is the associate of divinity, and immortality is the fruit of divinity. For every man is mortal, and immortality cannot be from that which is mortal. Therefore, from Christ as a mortal man, immortality cannot arise. But, says he, whosoever keepeth my word shall not see death for ever. Therefore, the word of Christ affords immortality, and by immortality affords divinity. Certainly, he is not man only who gives immortality, which, if he were only man, he could not give. But, by giving divinity by immortality, he proves himself to be God by offering divinity, which, if he were not God, he could not give. If Christ was only man, How did he say, before Abraham was, I am? For no man can be before him from whom he himself is. Nor can it be that anyone should have been prior to him of whom he himself has taken his origin. And yet Christ, although he is born of Abraham, says that he is before Abraham. Either, therefore, he says what is not true, and deceives, if he was not before Abraham, seeing that he was of Abraham, or he does not deceive, if he is also God, and was before Abraham. And if this were not so, it follows that being of Abraham, he could not be before Abraham. Christ promises to give salvation forever, which, if he does not give, he is a deceiver, If he gives, he is God, but he does not deceive, for he gives what he promises. Therefore he is God, who proffers eternal salvation, which man, being unable to keep himself forever, cannot be able to give to another. If Christ is only man, what is that which he says, I and the Father are one? So Novation 2 thinks that one main point of the passage is that Jesus existed before Abraham. But as you just heard, that point is embedded in a larger case that Christ cannot be, quote, man only, end quote. Basically, this is an early form of the two natures theory about Jesus, that he had to not merely be a human being made up of the same components as you and I, rational soul and body, or maybe rational soul, animal soul and body, But he must have had a divine element in there. There must be more to him. Otherwise, how could he do all those miracles and have such wonderful divine teaching? And moreover, Novation thinks, how could he give us immortality unless he is divine? 
How could he divinize us unless he is divine? A mere man, Novation thinks, couldn't do that. In this way, he says that Jesus proves himself to be, the translation says, God, capital G, lowercase o-d. One thing you have to remember about these Latin authors is that Latin doesn't have the word the. And so every time that you see the word God in a translation from Latin, just by the grammar of it, it could be translated lowercase g-o-d or uppercase g-o-d. In Greek, you have theos, normally translated a god, and then hotheos, the god, which is usually translated just god with a capital letter. This fact about Latin, I think, it made it easier for them to refer to Jesus as God. So innovation says he proves himself to be God by offering divinity. In Latin, grammatically, that's not distinguishable from he proves himself to be a God by offering divinity. Innovation's book on the Trinity, he calls Jesus God throughout and emphasizes that he's not merely a man, but must also be divine. And that makes you think it's a Trinitarian book. However, when you get to the end, you realize he thinks that the one true God is the Father. So, properly speaking, he's a Unitarian, but one who believes in the pre-existence, divinity, and two natures of Jesus. Not unlike Samuel Clark in the early 18th century. Okay, but what about this idea that Jesus is God himself, or the idea that he's fully divine or completely equal to God? Where, where do you see that idea coming in, in the history of interpreting John 8.58? Well, it kind of surprised me to learn that it didn't seem to be an important text in the Arian controversy. If you read the Cappadocian Fathers, at least their works that I've been able to look at, you don't find reference to it. You don't see this used to prove that Jesus is God it doesn't occur in Augustine's On the Trinity or The City of God. I searched through books like Hansen's The Search for the Christian Doctrine of God, which is the best big heavy history of the 4th century Nicene controversy, and uh, there's nothing about John 8:58 in there. And so I kept working my way through the volumes of the Antonicene Fathers. This series of translations of Catholic authors who wrote before the famous Council of Nicaea in 325. And finally, toward the end of the series, I found a text which says what a lot of people think that John 8 does say or should say. In this text, Jesus is having an argument with some Jews, and he tells them that he knows when they were born and also how long their life on earth will be. Then it says, Then all who heard these words were struck with astonishment and cried out, Oh, 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 this marvelously great and wonderful mystery! Never have we heard the like! Never has it been heard from anyone else, nor has it been said or at any time heard by the prophets or the Pharisees or the scribes. We know whence he is sprung, and he is scarcely five years old. And whence does he speak these words? The Pharisees answered, We have never heard such words spoken by any other child so young. And Jesus answered and said unto them, At this do ye wonder that such things are said by a child? Why, then, do ye not believe me in those things which I have said to you? And you all wonder, because I said to you, that I know when you were born. I will tell you greater things, that you may wonder more. I have seen Abraham, whom you call your father, and have spoken with him, and he has seen me. And when they heard this, they held their tongues, nor did any of them dare to speak. And Jesus said to them, I have been among you with children, and you have not known me. I have spoken to you as two wise men. 
and you have not understood my words because you're younger than I am and of little faith. That's the smoking gun, right? Jesus here says he's seen Abraham and Abraham's seen him and Jesus has spoken to Abraham. But alas, this is from a gospel that's very late. In the Antinocene Fathers, it's in volume 8, and it's called the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew. But the ancient name for it was the book about the origin of the Blessed Mary and the childhood of the Savior. And current scholarship dates it somewhere around 600 to 625 AD. Well, that's a bit of fun. You might say it's just Christian fiction. Actually, I think it's a lying forgery because... The book claims to be written by Matthew and lyingly says at the beginning that it was translated into Latin by the blessed presbyter Jerome, famous translator of the Latin Vulgate. But back to more serious and credible sources. When at first I couldn't find this in the era of the Nicene controversy and the Cappadocian fathers and so on, I said, what? Is this a very late innovation? Is taking John 8.58 to be not only about pre-existence, but about Jesus' divinity or eternity or Jesus saying that he's God himself? Is this only a modern or late medieval invention? And so I skipped ahead in history and looked at some 19th and 20th century sources, and I finally got a break. In John Calvin's commentary on this chapter of John, he refers to and agrees with John Chrysostom, who lived from around 345 to 407. He was a famous orator and archbishop of the important city of Constantinople in those important years after the council there in 381. And his last name is a nickname that means golden mouth because they loved his oratory so much. The text that Calvin and other modern authors like William Sherlock refer to is Chrysostom's Homily 55. There he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. My day seems to me to mean the day of the crucifixion, which Abraham foreshadowed typically by the offering of the ram and of Isaac. Because the Jews had said, The carpenter's son, and imagined nothing more concerning him, he leads them by degrees to an exalted notion of him. Therefore, when they heard the words, You don't know God, they were not grieved, but when they heard, Before Abraham was, I am, as though the nobility of their descent were debased, they became furious and would have stoned him. But why didn't he say, Before Abraham was, I was, instead of, I am? As the Father uses this expression, I am, so also does Christ, for it signifies continuous being, irrespective of all time, on which account the expression seemed to them to be blasphemous, now, if they could not bear the comparison with Abraham, although this was but a trifling one, had he continually made himself equal to the Father, would they ever have ceased casting stones at him? After this, again, he flees as a man and conceals himself, having led before them sufficient instruction, and having accomplished his work, he went forth from the temple and departed to heal the blind, proving by his actions that he is before Abraham. So like Novation, he thinks this proves that Jesus is divine, and specifically it proves that Jesus enjoys continuous being irrespective of all time. He seems to think that this implies a kind of eternal existence, not in the sense of existing at all times, but in the sense of existing timelessly. 
It's difficult to say quite what that amounts to, of course. And though because of the influence of Platonic philosophy, this was a very popular thesis on all sides of the controversy in the 4th century, many recent Christian philosophers have argued about whether or not this conception of eternity is coherent, whether God could be timeless, or whether rather God exists at all times. Whatever we say about that issue, for now, let's just observe that belief that Jesus is claiming timeless existence clearly assumes a two natures theory about Jesus. The man is sitting there right in front of you and obviously changing continually, and he's obviously in time. He's talking to you. His sentence ends later than it began. So then if he's asserting that he is timeless, he must be referring only to his divine nature being timeless. Note that Chrysostom does not think that Jesus is claiming to be God himself. Of course, he notices in the immediate context, Jesus saying, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But I speak these things as the Father instructed me. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man that has told you the truth that I heard from God. If God were your father, you would love me, for I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not from God. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say he is our God, though you do not know him, but I know him. God is someone else in this passage who Jesus obeys and cooperates with, and somebody who is seeking to glorify Jesus, whereas Jesus isn't seeking to glorify himself. Okay, then this is somebody else who is glorifying him, God, that is the Father. So no, Jesus isn't saying, I am God himself. He has just been talking about God as someone else. And because Jesus here is sent by God and obeying God, it's not clear that Chrysostom is correct in saying that Jesus here continually made himself equal to the Father. Frankly, that sounds like a partisan Nicene statement coming on the heels of that long Nicene controversy. True God from true God, light from light, right? They've got to be equal. That was the emphasized point in that controversy. But there was a more influential author who had a very similar take on John 8.58, and I don't know if this would have been before or after Chrysostom. In his commentary on the epistle 1 John, Augustine, or Augustine, Bishop of Hippo Regius in North Africa, says this, Rightly, he says not. Before Abraham I was, but before Abraham I am. For that of which one says was, is not. And that of which one says will be, is not yet. He knows not other than to be. As God, he knows to be. Was and will be, he knows not. It is one day there, but a day that is forever and ever. That day yesterday and tomorrow do not set in between them. That one day, there is a day without darkness, without night, without spaces, without measure, without hours. Call it what you want. If you want, it is a day. If you want, a year. If you want, years. For it is said of the same, 
and your ears shall not fail. But when is it called a day? When it is said to the Lord, Today have I begotten you. From the eternal Father begotten, from eternity begotten, in eternity begotten, with no beginning, no bound, no space of breath, because he is what is, because he himself is he that is. This his name he told to Moses. You shall say to them, He that is has sent me to you. And in a homily where he's commenting directly on John 8, he also says, He did not say, Before Abraham was, I was. But before Abraham was made, who was not made except by me, I am. Nor did he say, Before Abraham was made, I was made. Before Abraham was made, I am. Recognize the Creator, distinguish the creature. In Augustine's mind, then, Jesus has the divine nature, and the divine nature exists timelessly. The idea, and this undoubtedly comes from Platonic philosophy, is that a timeless being is alive, but that it has its life all at once. There's no flow to that life. You can think about that life as, Augustine says, a moment or a day or uh, as encompassing a year or years. But what is just is there. There is no change in eternity. There can't be change. Change presupposes time. In any change, there is a before and an after. But being is timeless, there can't be a before and after to it. Jesus, yes, Augustine thinks, is begotten from the Father. But again, on the heels of the Nicene Controversy, Augustine emphasizes that this is an eternal begetting. There's no time involved. There's no before and after. It's just in eternity there is the Father, and in eternity He is generating the Son. So the Son exists because of the Father, but there was never a time when the Son was not. So those evil Arians were wrong. And there's no sequence to this. And the idea is that because God's not making Jesus out of something else, but only, as it were, from Himself, then Jesus, too, is divine. True God from true God. Isn't that two gods? Well, the Nicene Creed starts off... We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. It's complicated. You might want to check out podcast episode 30 on the Council of Nicaea and the resulting Nicene Creed. I'm still intending to work my way up through the 4th century and eventually get to the Council of Constantinople in 381, but there's going to be at least one intervening episode. Now, Augustine is clearly a Trinitarian. He thinks that the one God is the Trinity. It's the three of them together. Of course, he'll call each one of the three God also. But since the Trinity is God himself, it's not clear that Augustine is reading this passage as Jesus saying that he is God himself. What he does think is that he, by using the present tense, is asserting that he exists in eternity, which no created thing does. And so, he must be on the uncreated side. The Nicene attitude is there's God, and there's everything else. Only God is eternal. Jesus is eternal, then Jesus is God in the sense of being divine and having the divine nature. This goes a lot further than saying that he existed before Abraham, or even that he has a divine nature in some sense. This is saying that he exists in eternity, and the assumption is that whatever exists in eternity is fully divine, seemingly just as divine as the Father. And this fits in with his Trinitarian view that Jesus is one of the, quote, persons in God. 
So clearly by this time, sometime in the early 400s, when Augustine is making these comments on John and on 1 John, from that time on, it's part of Catholic tradition to see Jesus not merely alluding to the statement of God to Moses, but really asserting that he has eternal existence and thereby asserting that he is fully divine. Now we have to ask, is this a discovery? Is this drawing out implications of what is said in the gospel according to John? Honestly, I don't think it is. It strikes me as a classic case, a textbook case of eisegesis rather than exegesis. That is, reading into it what you want to find there rather than drawing out what is actually there, expounding what the author actually meant. I found some helpful points about this passage in the book Divine Truth or Human Tradition by present-day Unitarian author Patrick Navas. One helpful point that he makes is this strange verb construction, right, before Abraham, so that's telling you this is something about the past, and then he says, I am. That's a weird verb construction to us. It wasn't weird to Greeks. It was idiomatic and is used to communicate an action which began in the past and which is still continuing. I won't go into the dirty grammatical details of this, but my point is that the expression is not so startling that the only thing that would make sense of it is that he's making a claim to divine, eternal, or timeless existence. And I think as Belsham correctly says, the meaning concerns the past, despite the use of the present tense there, uh, he is making a point about something in the past, that even way back then, I am he. Of course, he is still he. That is, Jesus, when he's saying this, is the Messiah. Even back then, he was the Messiah too, although not in the same way. It was in God's plan back then. Mr. Novice also makes a helpful couple of points about the angry reaction of the Jews. I mean, why are they so mad? Why are they going to stone him? It's common here for some people to pound the table and say, well, the only explanation of that is he's claiming to be God. Or, indirectly, he's claiming to be God by claiming to have an attribute like eternity that only God has. One point that Mr. Novice makes, and this is on page 445, is that Jesus' statement before Abraham was, I am, doesn't need to be so outrageous that it gets his opponents from zero to sixty immediately. Rather, there's been a slow acceleration here of hostility going through the whole chapter. There have been some hard words exchanged on both sides. Jesus says they're not of God, calls them liars. They say he's possessed by a demon and is a Samaritan. And now they're just getting even more incredulous. They think he's claiming to have existed before Abraham. Nava says, quote, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And on the next page, Novice points out that we have to remember an episode from Luke 4, where the people in the synagogue try to kill Jesus by throwing him off the edge of a mountain. What was Jesus' terrible offense there? Did he just say that he was God himself, or that he was divine or eternal or something like that? No, he had gone to the synagogue, gotten up and read from the scroll of Isaiah, read a passage that has to do with the Messiah, and then says to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They say, hey, this is just the local boy. He says, well, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Okay, so Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and the prophet. For this, they're going to throw him off a cliff. It's clear from this and from other passages that not only did some Jews have a rather expansive concept of blasphemy, but also you could make them really mad by saying a lot less than that you're God himself or that you're fully divine. 
Really, mere pre-existence at this point in the argument would have been enough. Or even just if the Jews thought that's what he was saying. I think that Jesus was saying that before Abraham was, he was the Messiah in the sense of was predestined to be the Messiah. They may have thought that he was just doubling down and insisting that he literally pre-existed before Abraham and so would be greater to and senior to Abraham. Well, they're hot-blooded at this point. What they thought may not be correct. Novice also quotes from Evangelical New Testament professor Craig Blomberg from his book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, 1987. Blomberg says, quote, The fact that the Jews immediately tried to stone Jesus does not mean they understood his statement as a direct equation of himself with God. Claiming that Abraham had seen his day, verse 56, itself bordered on blasphemy, and the Jews had already tried to kill him for much lesser crimes, such as healing on the Sabbath, Mark 3, 6, and speaking of God's love for the Gentiles, Luke 4.29, end quote. That's the passage I discussed a second ago, where they're going to throw him over a cliff. In sum, one way to put the point is this. Even if you don't think my interpretation of what Jesus is saying is correct, you have to admit this, that claiming to be God himself would be sufficient to get yourself stoned in that sociological context, but it would not be necessary for you getting stoned or killed and it would be sufficient for committing blasphemy, but it would not be necessary for committing blasphemy. There would be other ways one could commit blasphemy. I think those are undeniable truths. So if you want to say that they're going to stone him because he's claiming to be God himself, well, you've got one problem that that just goes directly against the context. But another problem would be, you can't just say that. You have to show that it is the best explanation relative to all the other things that could get you killed. But even if you can get over those two barriers, there still remains the question of, are these Jews correctly understanding Jesus, or are they, as they so often do in this book, stupidly misunderstanding what he's actually saying? Because if they are, and even if they think that he's saying that he's God himself, that's not really what he's saying. Where do we stand then? Well, it's important that we don't only read a passage of Scripture in whatever way best suits or supports our theological commitment. Interestingly, this whole dispute about how to interpret Jesus' statement before Abraham was, I am, really cuts across Unitarian and Trinitarian lines. Some Unitarians believe, or at least hold open the possibility, that Jesus is claiming to have existed before Abraham. And so people like Tertullian and Origen they're thinking that that's really just the point of it. And they hold, and they think that John would agree that you can be a genuine human being and have existed long before you were born. That you can be a genuine human being and have first existed perhaps eternally or for a very long time, just as a disembodied spirit, which is in some sense divine. And again, modern-day Trinitarians who hold the fully developed Trinitarian theology, they might take this the same way and then just try to prove the divinity of Christ, or that Jesus is one in the Trinity by many other passages. Now, you could say that the interpretation that Dr. Smith and I favor, and also Thomas Belsham and other people, you could say that's a deflationary reading, that it's less exciting or something, but what it is is it's less metaphysical. He's not making a point about his own essence or his own nature or the mode of his existence or his relationship to time that type of thing. Rather, he's speaking in a common Jewish idiom, wherein 
very important people or events or things are described as having always existed with God. They can be described as real in the past or present, even if they are only still going to come about in the future. And Dr. Smith and Mr. Belsham gave many examples of this from Scripture. Now, are these just rascally Unitarians trying to evade the obvious sense of the text? I don't think so. I think you could take that interpretation and be as Trinitarian as you please. It's just an attempt to let the context determine the original sense of the passage, the context of this chapter in John, the context of the Gospel of John, and the context of first century Jewish thought. And I think we have to be wary of what are claimed to be obvious implications or obvious illusions and associations. An association between one text and another can become obvious because we run around for hundreds of years saying that the one refers to the other. But if in ancient times nobody seemed to see that connection, then it's just not obvious. It maybe needs to be argued for. Myself, I can't come up with any reason to think that Jesus or the author of the Gospel of John are deliberately referring to Exodus, the conversation between God and Moses, or to the passages in Isaiah where God says, I am he. I suppose it's hard in most languages to avoid saying I am. Here, are you the guy I met at that conference? You say, I am. Dude, you're blaspheming, you're claiming to be God. No, that's just idiomatic in English for, yes, I am the one that you met at the conference. Jesus is walking on the water. Don't be afraid. Ego a me. The translation correctly says, it is I. In other words, it's me, Jesus. It's not a ghost or something. It's not strange and striking enough language to cause the reader to think that this is a hint, that he's really laying a groundwork for people to see that he's God himself. Is that what's going on? Well, as concerns John 8, the context of it doesn't force that. If there's an overall case for that, then fine. That's all I have this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your feedback on the blog and the audio feedback that some of you have uploaded. I'm really honored to have you listening. I really appreciate your questions and comments. A lot of them are very insightful. I don't always have time to reply to all of them on the blog. That doesn't mean that I haven't seen them. It just means sometimes I have a lot of demands on my time. If you enjoy this podcast, could you do us a favor? And if you're an iTunes user, could you subscribe to us there and then leave a review there? This will help other people to find the Trinity's podcast on iTunes. Or maybe if you use the service and the program Stitcher, if you could subscribe to us there and leave a review there for us. Those are the two biggest ways that people find podcasts that are looking for Christian podcasts and podcasts on theology and analytic theology and Christian philosophy. Those are some ways that you can express your love. Another way is, if you enjoyed this episode, would you consider posting a link on Facebook or Google Plus or Twitter? for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.